the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Welcome to The First Degree. It's me, Jack, and Alexis. It's Friday. It's, it's, you know, not our usual episode, but I think if you've been listening the past couple weeks, you know that we are kind of in the depths of our heavy metal series. And this is the fourth of 10 bonus episodes that we're going to be sharing with you. So each of these special episodes are dedicated to focusing on the lives of the victims of the Long Island serial killer. We refer to him as Lisk. A lot of people do. And now that you've already likely listened to our three-part deep dive on Lisk, and if you haven't, you should start listening to that so you're going to have context of everything that we're going to be talking about today. Right. Not only are they really excellent podcast episodes we're proud of, but they're also necessary to fully appreciate these bonus episodes and the others that we have coming down the pipeline in weeks to come. And as you know by now, again, if you've been listening, like many serial killers, Lisk targeted sex workers because they're often viewed as easy targets for violent crime. And to help stop violence against sex workers, we've created the Heavy Metal Project Initiative. Here's how this fundraising and awareness campaign initiative works. So we've partnered with Jimmy Toast, a Long Island-based jewelry brand, and we went to elementary school together. She's super creative, and she's created 10 gorgeous necklaces inspired by and in honor of each of the Long Island serial killer victims. And the necklaces are available for purchase at theheavymetalproject.com, but you can also find them on her Jimmy Toast website. And the release of each necklace coincides with these episodes you're hearing here every Friday. So in today's example, we are talking about Melissa Bartholomew. The Melissa necklace will be available for purchase upon the release of this episode. Right. And 100% of the net profits from the necklaces are going to the Sex Workers Outreach Project or SWAP. It is a nonprofit dedicated to the fundamental rights of people in the sex trade. And again, the necklaces are available for purchase at theheavymetalproject.com. So now let's get ready to know Melissa Bartholomew. On July 12th of 2009, 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew vanished into thin air. At this time, she was involved in sex work, often working out of New York City. And the day before she went missing, Melissa had met with a client. She told associates of hers that the client had paid her $1,000 for an overnight visit. So that's why, on July 12th, security footage showed Melissa depositing most of that money into her bank account. But she kept $100 cash on her person. That same night, Melissa called her ex-boyfriend and former pimp. His name was John Terry, but he usually went by Blaze. And Melissa actually had Blaze tattooed on her back. And since the two had a falling out, Blaze wasn't Melissa's pimp anymore. And now Melissa was working independently through websites like Craigslist. And this was a common trend for sex workers at this time, especially when Craigslist and similar websites became popular in the early 2000s. Sex workers everywhere, and frankly, I would be too, were tired of giving all of their money to pimps who weren't really doing anything except taking advantage of them and exploiting them, or worse, abusing them physically, getting them addicted to drugs. You name it, they were doing it, and women were getting tired of this. But the thing is, sex work is dangerous no matter what, with or without a pimp, which 
cases like Lisk have demonstrated for us. So if a John wants to harm a sex worker, no pimp is going to be able to stop it or intervene in time. But either way, revisiting Craigslist as the medium for workers to be connected with clients, for the first time, these sites gave these women some real agency over the work they were doing, which is truly something sex workers deserve. Exactly. So sex workers everywhere were starting to make their own appointments through Craigslist erotic services section. This way, the sex workers could keep all of their money that they earned. And plus, they could Google a John before agreeing to go out with them. So as we said, on July 12th, Melissa called Blaze, though we aren't really sure why. And the call was less than a minute long, so it's likely that Blaze didn't even pick up. Blaze said that he did talk to Melissa about this July 12th client, but he has said a lot of stuff to police and reporters over the years, and no one's really sure what's true and what's not. Right, because these guys who were pimps or who facilitated sex work have a lot of reasons to be cagey and lie, worried that they themselves will face legal ramifications for their involvement in this. We actually saw this happen with Megan Waterman's boyfriend slash pimp, Akeem. He did end up facing charges for sex trafficking Megan across state lines. So of course they're going to possibly be deceptive or at the very least omit information that could make them look bad or make them seem accountable for what had happened to one of these women. So while he did several interviews with journalists, we need to take Blaze's account with a huge grain of salt. But here's what he said. He indicated that he knew the name and location of the John that Melissa was going to see on the 12th. But that seems unlikely because after Melissa left her Bronx apartment on Underhill Avenue late on July 12th of 2009, she was never seen again. So if Blaze really did know who she was seeing, surely investigators would have tracked that client down by now if he had a name, a number, an address. And in our opinion, this guy, Blaze, is not worth trusting at all. And to help paint a better picture of who Blaze is, consider this. So when Melissa started working as a sex worker independently, without Blaze as her pimp, he sent several of his other sex workers to beat the shit out of her to send a message. So this is the level of human we're dealing with. Um, Not to be trusted, only cares about himself, is willing to inflict violence when he doesn't get his way and when anyone fucks with his money. So that's who we're dealing with. Yeah, not a good guy. So the day after Melissa called Blaze on July 13th, Melissa wasn't answering her phone. Her family, who she talked to almost daily, was worried that they hadn't heard from her. And Melissa's 14-year-old sister, Amanda, was super worried. And this is because Amanda was the only family member who knew that Melissa was a sex worker. Melissa's mom was just under the impression that Melissa was an exotic dancer at a club. Precisely. Amanda knew that if Melissa was missing, that something was very very wrong. So with this, Amanda did the right thing and told their mom about Melissa's sex work. And their mom immediately understood the danger and implications of the situation. By this point, Lynn, her mom, had already called every hospital she could think of in New York City. And now that she knew these details, Lynn contacted the New York Police Department and reported Melissa missing on July 18th of 2009. But The New York Police Department did what the police often do. I'm not going to say always when a sex worker goes missing. They don't exactly jump into immediate action. In fact, from the perspective of Melissa's family, they kind of blew them off um, and didn't think there was much that could be done or that should be done. And according to Lynn, the New York Police Department was not helpful. The officers figured that Melissa was an adult and there was no reason for concern. She was allowed to be missing if she wanted to. 
And for days, the police wouldn't take Melissa's case seriously. So out of options, Melissa's family asked their lawyer to contact the NYPD. That lawyer, Steve Cohen, gave an interview to CBS's 48 Hours. And according to Steve, the police told him, she's a hooker, she's a prostitute, she's an escort. What do you want us to do? Assign a detective to this? I am like blown away. I hope things have changed. I mean, it's only been like 13 years, but I cannot believe the black and white thinking of mm-hmm. many of the police officers at that time. Like it's it boggles my mind that they would be so callous. You know, many of them had daughters this age, you know? Yeah. Um, I can't believe people can can diminish, you know, somebody's worth so quickly. Literally just thinking of them as complete subhuman. Like that that line that I just had to read was so disgusting to read and to say out loud that I just can't believe the people that are supposed to be protecting us are thinking of some people like that. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's really sad. Yeah. And I hate to be the one to say this, but guess who the people are who engage, who, who purchase the services of sex workers? Yep. It's these people. It's the people yep. who talk about them like that. It's the people who it's white men with money. I'm sorry. It's mm-hmm. just like, so I, it's, it makes me even more mad that they're dehumanized to such a degree when they, these same people saying it are seeking their services, you know? Right. But they want to deny them basic human rights. Anyways, the Buffalo News reported that the police started investigating properly, I put that in quotes, 10 days after Melissa was reported missing. And this wasn't out of the kindness of their hearts or a sincere desire to do their job or anything like that. It was actually pure chance. So follow this web for a second. So Melissa's mother, Lynn, had a fiance named Jeff. Jeff had spoken to his brother, James, about Melissa's disappearance. Then James spoke with his friend, Timothy, who is a county sheriff. You don't need to remember that sequence, but just know it was a a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend had a friend at the sheriff's (laughs) department. Yeah. So James tells Tiffany at the sheriff's department what had happened. They ran into each other at an Italian street festival. This was completely by chance. Probably the San Gennaro Fest because that's the big one in New York. And... Through this personal happenstance connection, they were actually able to get things moving and get the help they deserve. And from there, County Sheriff Timothy contacted an undersheriff named Richard. And Richard called Melissa's family to get the details of the situation. And then Richard called a friend of his who was a police officer at the NYPD. And that friend, the police officer from the NYPD, began looking for Melissa. Once the police finally began looking, Melissa's family attorney said that the police did pretty well. It was a thorough investigation and everything. But still, there's no getting around that it should not have taken all of this shit in an Italian street festival to start searching for Melissa. Like, it is absolutely insane. Well, and you know what doesn't help? The game of telephone. Yeah. You know, this is what happened here, the loose details, and it's being shared, 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 shared. It doesn't, you know, inspire a sense of urgency. It's... It's not how it should have gone down. And mm-hmm. if the police had the resources to let this policeman investigate, why weren't they just doing it from the beginning? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, why did they have to go through all this and dilute the case by letting all this time pass? It's like so frustrating. But whatever, after a series of logistical and bureaucratic or acrobatics, the New York Police Department's finally investigating Melissa's missing persons case. And they searched her Bronx apartment and interviewed people at, you know, 
the exotic dance clubs where she danced sometimes. And they also looked into Melissa's cell phone records. And her cell phone activity revealed that on the day she went missing, she had traveled from the Bronx to Manhattan. So I'm not going to bother with the geography. Look at a look at a map of the tri-state area. But the belief is she was probably taking a taxi from her apartment to wherever her client was in Manhattan. And the cell phone activity also revealed that after Melissa vanished, someone had opened her voicemail. So someone was going through her phone. And whoever that was had also made a phone call from Melissa's phone from Massapequa. Okay, so Massapequa is on Long Island. So for context, it's a small town in Nassau County, which is the county directly west of Suffolk County. It's a lot, but yeah. Yeah. So this town has a population of around 21,000 people, and it's about 20 miles west of Gilgo Beat. And this is a place, as I'm sure everybody knows by now, a year and a half later in 2010, Melissa's body was discovered. She was one of the Gilgo Four who had been hidden in plain sight near Ocean Parkway along Gilgo Beach. And Melissa, like the other Gilgo Four, had been strangled. And believe it or not, we haven't even addressed the craziest part of Melissa's case. And that's that Melissa's little sister, 14-year-old Amanda, received several disturbing phone calls from a person believed to be Lisk in the days following Melissa's disappearance. Right. And to say these calls were disturbing would be an understatement, right? They were intended to be taunting and no doubt would have been extremely traumatizing to Amanda. And we totally understand that you probably have a million questions. We do too. Like, what happened to Melissa? Who was a Long Island serial killer? Why did he call her little sister? What did he say? And how could those calls potentially lead to identifying who this person is? So you know the drill. To answer these questions, let's go back. Melissa Mary Bartholomew was born on April 14th of 1985 to her mother, Lynn, and her father, Mark, in Buffalo, New York. Melissa's parents were young when they had her. Her mom, Lynn, was 16 years old and a sophomore in high school, and her dad, Mark, was 18 years old and a senior. By the early 90s, Lynn and Mark had ended their relationship. Mark would eventually move to Dallas, Texas, while Lynn stayed in New York. And after some time, Lynn began seeing a new man, and around 1994, they had a daughter. And that daughter was Melissa's half-sister, Amanda. And Melissa spent most of her childhood near Buffalo, New York, though she did live with her father, Mark, in Dallas when she was 16. But she was back in New York by the time she was 18. And for a little while, Melissa lived with her mother in Alden, New York, which is a suburb of Buffalo. But Melissa wasn't a huge fan of Alden, so she moved out of her mother's home and began living on her own. She went back to where she was originally from in Buffalo, got a roommate, got a job, and graduated from high school with straight A's. And this kind of, you know, that's okay, I'll do it myself mentality was par for the course with Melissa. She was a very independent young woman who knew how to handle her business. Her mother, Lynn, told Newsday journalists that Melissa was always tough. One time, Melissa was attacked by a mugger who threatened her with a knife. And Melissa, who was only four foot 11 and 95 pounds, took the mugger's knife and stabbed him with it. Badass. Jeez. When Melissa wasn't being a badass, she was a social butterfly with a great smile with a ton of friends. She was confident, charming, and made friends easily. And she was comfortable in any room. So when she began studying at the Continental Beauty School in Buffalo in the early 2000s, things looked like they were going great for Melissa, that she had a bright future and all was going well. She had a career path. She had a good head on her shoulders. And she hung out with her friends and family all the time. They were tight-knit. Everything seemed like it was falling into place exactly the way it was supposed to. When Melissa was 22 years old, she moved to New York City for a new job as a hairstylist. 
She paid $700 in rent each month to live in a basement apartment in the Bronx. And over time, she accumulated quite a collection of stray cats that she really loved and cared for. And this wasn't strange for people who knew Melissa. She always helped out anybody in need, cats included. Melissa's mother, Lynn, told 48 Hours that she was concerned New York City would eat Melissa alive, but Melissa was doing great. Sure, New York City was expensive, but she was figuring it out along the way. And to get by, Melissa picked up a side gig as an exotic dancer at a strip club. And Lynn told the Banger Daily News, I had spoken to her a few times and told her I wasn't too happy about it, but I told her to be careful. She said, Mom, I'm never alone. I'm always going to have a friend and it's just dancing. According to Melissa's family lawyer, Steve Cohen, Melissa started doing sex work because she was behind on rent from time to time. And one of those times, a man approached Melissa with an opportunity for her to make a lot of cash very quickly. The opportunity was, of course, sex work, and the man was John Terry, or Blaze, who we mentioned in the beginning of this episode. After Melissa went missing on July 12th of 2009, her little sister Amanda began receiving calls from Melissa's phone. But the calls weren't from Melissa. They were from a stranger. A man Amanda didn't know, in a voice that she didn't recognize. From his voice, experts think that the caller was probably a white male in his late 20s or early 30s. He spoke softly and in a controlled, confident manner. From the jump, Melissa's family and the police suspected that this caller was the person responsible for Melissa's disappearance, which is chilling and holy crap, Amanda, as a 14-year-old, this is some heavy, heavy stuff for you to have to deal with. And my heart truly goes out to you. Um, How awful to have to navigate this with the police at the time your sister is missing. But, you know, given the information we have, there's a high chance that this unknown caller is in fact the Long Island serial killer. Unfortunately, the call wasn't able to be traced. And the specific language used by the caller has never been released to the public. But what I can tell you, I know some circumstances that I've heard from investigators working on the case, it was menacing, it was racist, it was cruel, and it was taunting. In total, the man who was probably Lisk called Amanda about eight times between July 16th and August 26th. Each phone call was made from a different public location in Midtown Manhattan, Times Square, and Madison Square Garden. And the man always hung up before police could trace his information. Some believe that this is evidence that the man was probably in law enforcement, or at least he had some knowledge of forensic abilities. As in, he knew enough about police procedures to understand exactly how long he could harass Amanda without putting himself at risk. But others think that the popularity of cop TV shows made the whole, the police can trace you after how many minutes thing, public knowledge. Right. And... To piggyback on this idea that it could be law enforcement, it could be anyone who commutes into the city daily for work. It could be someone in the electrician's union. It could be because obviously we know that Long Island is a hub for him. He's not in the city 100% of the time if we think this is Lisk because he's dumping his victims in Manorville all the way out east and on Gilgo Beach. So someone who commutes to the city or is needing to be there for work often, right? Either way, this unknown man tortured Amanda with these horrific messages, and in them, he detailed sexually explicit things that he'd done to Melissa and threatened to do the same things to Amanda. He shared that he knew Amanda's exact address, and he admitted to Amanda that he had harmed and killed Melissa. And at one point, the man asked Amanda if she was a quote-unquote whore like her sister. And this specific use of the word whore may or may not be seen as significant, depending on what information in the case we're 
comparing to this, right? So we have yet to release our episode specific to that of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. But in her case, a strange man had called her friend Sarah and told her that Maureen, another one of the Gilgo Four, was at a quote-unquote whorehouse in Queens. They believe that call may have come from Lisk as well. And there are even more connections between this disturbing caller and the other victims connected to this case. For example, during one of his calls to Amanda, Melissa's phone pinged a cell tower near the Port Authority. And that was the last place where Jessica Taylor was seen before she was found in Manorville. And needless to say, upon receiving these taunting calls, Amanda would likely have been distraught as well as the rest of her family. Melissa's mother, Lynn, pulled 48 hours. He's sick and he's going to make a mistake and we're going to catch him. Additional phone calls were also made by a different person from Melissa's second cell phone. But detectives don't think that this cell phone was ever handled by Lisk. It was found in the possession of an ex-convict who said that he found it after two women started fighting in the streets. And on Saturday, December 11th of 2010, the police found Melissa's body alongside Ocean Parkway on Gilgo Beach. She was the first of the Gilgo Four to be found. And as a quick reminder, the Gilgo Four victims were all discovered during the search for another missing sex worker, 23-year-old Shannon Gilbert. When Melissa's body was identified, her family was heartbroken, obviously. Their family lawyer, Steve Cohen, told the Buffalo News they feared the worst, and now the worst has been confirmed. And as much as we've, you know, criticized various police departments for how they've handled each of these cases connected to the Long Island serial killer case will give the NYPD its due credit on this one thing. So in February of 2011, two NYPD detectives named William McGroerty and Anthony Sugila, I'm sorry if I butchered that gentleman, I, it's the best I can do. They attended Melissa's funeral, okay? So they had a particularly special connection to Melissa's case and to her family. And that's because for two years, the officers had personally reached out to Melissa's family to give them case updates, okay? Like, some police do care. Some police are great cops. And some people, some cops are nuanced, and they're good in some cases, and they're bad in others. But these two seem to really give a shit about this case. And they made sure that they called at least once every two weeks to let Melissa's family know what was going on. And William McGordy told Newsday, we wanted to make sure they knew we're not going to give up on this case. Yeah, I mean, you can't give up now, right? I mean, if this case remains unsolved, it's going to be bigger than Jack the Ripper. It's going to be bigger than the Zodiac. Like, they have to solve this case. I don't think these police departments will ever live it down if they don't. No, not at all. And I believe they're really trying now. Now I believe the right people are in place, and I believe the right people care. And I... Frankly, they feel the pressure to solve it. I don't know that their intentions are more altruistic than the last cops, but yeah, it's on their radar for sure. Well, if you would like to go check out the necklace that was made in Melissa's honor, check out the heavymetalproject.com to support sex workers' human rights. And if you have any information about the Long Island serial killer, please contact the Suffolk County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS. There's a $50,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. And a final thing we want to say is just our hearts go out to Melissa's family, having to deal with these calls, having to deal with the neglect of her case. It's undeserved. It's deranged. And 
we should all be doing everything we can to help bring justice. So that's all. Yeah, absolutely. 